0: The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. It's good to see you, and good to be back with you. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll begin starting in verse 27, and then we'll go through all the way through the end of 13. Um, And it's just really good to be back. And my family and I had a great vacation um, in Washington, D.C., and got to have some time of rest and just really grateful for other pastors and elders at our church who are able to faithfully and wonderfully preach God's Word to you. So I'm really grateful for Pastor Kevin and and Pastor Barry. And and I'm really grateful and proud of this church and our church, or for those of you especially who came out yesterday um, to speak for the unborn. At the Planned Parenthood clinic uh, down in, in Houston, uh, your presence, um, your protest, uh, your prayers uh, were significant. Um, and you may think even afterwards, I don't even know if I really did anything. You did. You definitely did. Um, and I know talking to a few people afterwards, it's like, oh, I could have done more. I, I could have been more bold with the Planned Parenthood volunteers that were there, and I, I wish I could have done. That's Okay. That was your. That was my first protest to ever be at. So I, I. I don't feel like I definitely did everything I could have. But the good thing about it is you can do it again, and you can go again and again. And I. And I know that we will. And so many of you came and evangelized and read the Bible out loud and and prayed and um, held signs. We stood together in protest, and the Lord really was glorified. I believe that with all my heart. I couldn't stop thinking while we were there about the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty five when he gives us a snapshot of a conversation that's going to happen in an eternity. And Jesus says, the king will say to those on his right, so these are his sheep, he's already separated the goats, and now he's looking at his sheep, and he says, come, you who are blessed by my Father to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or when did we see you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? It's A fair question. And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it for the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I will imagine hearing Jesus say to us, I was aborted and you spoke for me. I was ripped apart and you used your voice for me. And I know some of you couldn't make it and You were sending messages and saying how you're praying for us while you're down there, and you're joining with us in prayer, so thank you. We're we're all in this together. We all have different roles to play and different things to do, and I think that God, and I hope he is, awakening a new pro-life movement in our country. Piper gave his reflections on being at thousands of people gathered at the one in Minnesota, and Planned Parenthood's kind of media spin. It's, oh, these are a bunch of extremists that are down there trying to ruin, ruin women's health care. And Piper said, I just saw too many backpacks and strollers to call us a bunch of extremists. And we were down there, there were babies, there were strollers. We were not extremists at all. It was very peaceful, very prayerful. But yes, we are looking to bring down the Planned Parenthood Reich and the human chop shop would come down. And I think God can do this in our time. Who would have imagined three months ago that a piece of legislation would have been introduced to defund Planned Parenthood? Not on any of our radar. And who would have imagined that even a month ago that some of you would be holding a sign and praying outside the largest abortion clinic in the Western Hemisphere? I didn't think I'd be doing that on a Saturday. And some of us didn't think we'd even be doing it that on Monday. Because God is at work. And one of the common words I kept hearing yesterday as Mandy was speaking to these Planned Parenthood volunteers, as I heard Brian reading the Bible out loud and people praying, and I kept hearing and women walking inside and people trying to get their attention, and what we were saying to them was really, this was one word over and over and over, love. We love you. We love your baby. God loves you. Why are we trying to compel these women? Because of love. And then we can broaden this out and then and really trace the thread. Why do Christians do what we do? Why do we serve? Why do we pray? Why do we give? Why do we go to the nations and try to tell them about Jesus? Why do we love our neighbors? Why do we tell others about Jesus? Why do Christians not quit on each other? Why shouldn't we quit on each other? There are far too many ex-friends in the Christian community. Why do Christians gather in homes and open Bibles and pray together? Why why do we weep together and rejoice together? Because of love. Love should be seen as the common denominator of the entire Christian experience. From the day that you are born again, and from the day, from the first day of the resurrection of the dead and the new heavens, the new earth, and then 20 trillion years after that, love abides. And the Corinthians, they were not prioritizing love. And they needed to be reminded what love really is, and so do we, because as soon as I say the word love, we all think of different things. But 1 Corinthians 13 really gives us a grounding wire for high-powered and industrial strength love. So let's stand together in honor of Christ, because we'll hear these words today directly from him, the same authority, beginning in chapter 12, verse 27, and we'll read all the way to the end of chapter 13. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of man and have angels, but not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing." If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. let's pray. Holy Father, now, would you help us, please? Send your Spirit to move among us, to captivate us, to grab us, and to let us hear your Word, that we would be quickened, that we would be changed, and that maybe even some of us would be born again by your mighty heart of love. Help us now, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Like most people, I I get song lyrics stuck in my head, and I'm sure you do too. It can be anything from you hear on TV, hear on the radio. It could be you're, someone was humming it at your office, and then later you're humming it, or you're singing another song for some reason. And you're like, why am I singing this song? I've never heard this song, like in weeks. Or why am I doing this? And no matter what I did these last few days, as I studied and looked at this passage more and more, I could not. I just could not get Tina Turner's course, What's Love Got to Do With It, out of my mind. And it's a terrible song. I kept thinking about it, and I, like, I, can't, I can't get this song out of my head because of this passage. There's so much about love, and so what's love? Well, love has everything to do with it when you think of the Christian life. And she's singing about relationships and physical intimacy and really downplaying love, where she says, What's Love Got to Do With It? Love What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love but a sweet, old-fashioned notion? And I think about that and go, that is the Corinthian church. They're arguing over which spiritual gifts are better. You can really see that at the end of 12. they, They wish they were some had prophecy. Some wished they had the gifts of healing, and they didn't have it. They all wanted to be prophets. They all wanted to speak in tongues. They all were kind of fighting and clamoring over who had better gifts. And as you saw in, in Pastor Kevin's sermon, hey, if you're a hand, that's okay. If you're a foot, that's okay. You're not any less part of the body of Christ. God's given varying spiritual gifts, and that's all up to Him. And they're treating love as a secondhand issue. They're treating love as though it's an old-fashioned kind of thing. We want the good stuff. We want the gifts. We want the impressive public nature. But look what Paul says at the end of 12, 1231. I will show you a still more excellent way. He says, hey, it's not wrong to desire the gifts. We can affirm that. He's not downplaying the gifts at all. He says, earnestly desire the gifts. You should all earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And we'll talk more about gifts over the next few weeks. But he says, let me show you a still more excellent way And what? This is chapter 13, the way of love. Love has to do with everything. Love, this is the first thing we're going to see in verses 1 to 3, love legitimizes what we do. They were overly obsessed with spiritual gifts, showing them off, thinking way too highly of them. They forgot that spiritual gifts, they don't exist for yourself. They exist for others. Everyone who's in Christ in here has a spiritual gift, and it doesn't exist for you, but it exists for your brothers and sisters and for the glory of God. And if you don't have love, it's nothing. Look at verse 1. He gives these hypothetical scenarios. If I, you see, so he's saying, just imagine if. Imagine if I speak in the tongues of man and of angels, but I have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he says, imagine I can speak in all the tongues of men and I have this, I can even speak with the angels in their angelic language, whatever that is. We have no idea, really. You look it up, tons of people are like, I don't know what he's talking about here. I think Paul's just giving major hypotheticals where they would hear it and they would be like, wow, that's impressive. They would be impressed with that. But he says, if I don't have love, it's just a clanging cymbal. I mean, if Dale was playing drums this morning, imagine if while I'm preaching or during that last song, instead of Dale doing what he should be doing, to, you know, to, to help bring it all together, he decides, I'm going to have a little cymbal solo up here. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it would be memorable. <laughs> but it wouldn't serve the purpose. It'd be like doing a cymbal solo during Amazing Grace. Way Distracting. And the Corinthians loved the gifts of knowledge and prophecy. They thought those were the higher, the, the better ones. And so look what Paul says in verse 2. If I have prophetic powers, not just a gift, power, prophetic power, that I speak and people tremble and I, can, I tell a future and I say powerful things like Moses, and I understand all mysteries. There's not one thing in the Scriptures that Paul says, imagine, I understand it all. And we know, man, this is like way exaggerated. And in all knowledge. And look at this. I have faith to even remove mountains. Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can lift up that mountain and toss it over there. Paul says, no, I, I, let's imagine I have the faith to lift up that mountain and flick it into the universe. I can remove it, not just move it, I can remove them. And I don't have love. I am nothing. He didn't say it. I nothing. He's going to say that next. He didn't even say it was nothing. He says, I am nothing. Nothing to be impressed by. Nothing helpful. And then he takes it to the extreme, verse 3. If I give away all I have. We've heard this in the Gospels, rich young ruler. So all that you have, give to the poor, come follow me. I think pauls he's really piggybacking off a lot of Jesus' words. I have to give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned. I'm the greatest missionary ever. I'm a martyr. I die, and I do it on mission for Jesus, but I don't have love. I gain nothing. I did it for nothing. Do you see how essential, how fundamental, and how necessary love is to all that we do? Even if I protest Planned Parenthood, and yet I don't have love, it is nothing. Love is what makes Christians supernatural. It's the first fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Love legitimizes what we do. And lack of love neuters what we do. Lack of love renders what we do to nothing. Instead of it, it's I picture, like, we're doing stuff, we're serving, we're preaching, we're counseling, we're praying, evangelizing, and we're building something with our gifts and what we're doing. And we are got the kind of mold out there. And instead of building a solid statue of what we're doing, when we don't have love, we end up making paper mache, the hollowed out paper mache statue of what we're doing. And so how can we... When we read this, our concern should be, my concern should be, all of us should be, how can I serve and, and pray and love and have faith and, and not be an annoying, ridiculous noisemaker? I don't want to be a clanging gong. I don't want to be a clanging symbol. So how do we get away from that? The more excellent way of love. Love is hard to ignore. Clinging gong. That's easy to ignore. But love is hard to ignore. Kindness is really hard to ignore. Love is to be the common denominator through every Christian experience because love has everything to do with it. What is the great commandment? How does Jesus sum up following him? Love God and love your neighbor. And we all have to watch ourselves at this point because I know most of us know that. But how often do we let lack of love for others go unrepented of? How often do we let lack of love just, just go? If you think you're a brilliant thinker of, in the Scriptures, that you know your Bible super well, you know it, and you're always the go-to person in your group or with friends to answer the Scriptures, but, but people really know you to be unloving. All of your Bible knowledge is really just for you. It's worthless. It's for nothing. And you don't know the book as you ought. If you're hospitable or you serve a lot and, and you grumble while you do it, you open up your home to have studies in, to have people over, and you're always grumbling. I wish, wish people would help me clean up, and I just, I can't believe they didn't offer to help clean up afterwards, and I wish more people would open up their home, so I didn't have to open up my home all the time, and good grief. And you hide it, you're grumbling, you're frustrated, you've hollowed out your service and turned it into nothing. So where in your life are you lacking love? Notice, Paul doesn't say that he's doing anything wrong. These are all good things that he's, these hypotheticals. Spiritual gifts, faith, giving away all he has. These are all good things, but yet you can turn them into nothing without having love. This is what Jesus tells the Pharisees You did the gifts, you even tithe out of your spice cabinet, but you neglected the love of God. You might be doing what you're supposed to be doing. But are you loving like you should be loving? Some of us really need to peer into our lives and to be honest with ourselves and look into the mirror and admit and confess to God this right here, that that happened yesterday, this that was, uh, that was not loving. So what do we do now? You want Here's what we have to do next. You have to behold love and then you will love. If you will behold love, then you will love. Look at verse four. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It's not inflated is really what that word means. It's not impressed by its own thoughts of itself. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And there's also another Greek concept in here that could say something like, it doesn't keep a record of wrongdoing against itself. Love is, verse 6, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If love is so important, we need to know what love really is. And the American conception of love is more confused than ever. Really, and our, our English language is so poor, it doesn't help translate all these concepts. Greek has at least four words to describe love. We have one. You can say in one paragraph that you love steak, that you love the new Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, that you love the Rockets, that you love your spouse, and that you love Jesus. These cannot all be the same level of love. If they are, you're in big trouble with at least two people, Jesus and your spouse. When we think of biblical love, we should not always think of romantic love. And it's usually where we go. That is not the first thing. There is a category for that. The Bible has a category for that, husband and wife. But when a brother in Christ tells me, I love you, bro, you got to filter that. In a non-weird, romantic American way, biblical way, brotherly love. In 1 Corinthians 13, we are getting a robust, pervasive understanding of what Christian love is, and this is really important. This is really important, because I know most of you have heard this passage. You've at least heard verses 4 to 7. You may not have heard the rest of the passage, but you've heard verses 4 to 7 at weddings. And one of my missions today is to help end the unbridled love affair of this passage as it pertains to weddings. Is it wrong to read it at a wedding? Of course not. A fine application for marriages. I'm gonna give some later. But is Paul, is Paul talking about marriages in 1 Corinthians 13? No. No, he is a he's not addressing marriages at all. The context of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is the way the Corinthian church should be loving one another. The way the brothers and sisters in Christ should be loving one another according to Christ. So this is first and foremost not about husbands and wives, though that is a fine application, but it is first and foremost about ministry to one another. So I think this passage should be read more at members' meetings than it is read at wedding ceremonies. This passage should be read more in our small groups and in our new members' classes more than it's read at weddings, because this is what Paul is first addressing. And here's really the next thing we learn about this little chunk in verses 4 to 7. Love is something you do. It's active. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love does not envy, does not boast. Love isn't rude. You, you see, love isn't just this kind of static back uh, feelings. It's lived out. It's motion. It's, goes, it's not passive. It's, it's active. It's not just affections. It's actions. And I don't think when the Corinthians heard these words from Paul that any of them thought, wow, I want that read at my wedding." Or, wow, that was beautiful. Can we get that on one of our pillows, dear? I, th- I don't think that would have happened. They would have heard these words and been cut right through their hearts. I mean, think about what Paul's saying to them. What love is, and all the sins he's been rebuking them of up to this point. He's been addressing their lack of love in, in chapters 1 through 12 this whole time. And now he's showing them, he's giving them a category for their main problem. Love. Love is patient. Is the Corinthian church patient? No. In chapter 11, Paul rebukes them for not even waiting to take the Lord's Supper together. Love is kind. Paul rebukes them for not sharing food at the Lord's Supper with each other and dividing over their favorite Bible teachers. Love does not envy or boast. They envy each other's spiritual gifts. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, there is jealousy and strife among you. Love is not arrogant. They were sinning and they did not care. eighteen, he says, some of you are arrogant as though I weren't coming to see you. Love is not rude. The wealthier Corinthian Christians were being disrespectful and kind of cordoning off the other poor Corinthian Christians. Women were addressing in a rude fashion and inappropriately at their church gatherings. Love does not insist on its own way. And chapter 8, Paul rebukes them for insisting on their own way. And instead of building each other up, because love builds up, they are tearing each other down by eating the food sacrificed to idols and not caring if it injures their brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is not resentful. And chapter 6, what are they doing? They're suing each other. And Paul says, isn't it better to just be wronged? But no, they're resentful. They rejoice, Paul says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. In chapter 5, they are celebrating how much grace they are showing a man for having slept with his stepmom. They're rejoicing. You see what Paul's doing? He's showing them how they are unloving in chapters 1 to 12, rebuking them. I don't think Paul's giving this exhaustive definition of love. I think love's much bigger than what we're seeing here. But he's showing them, here are ways that you're not loving. Your problem from 1 Corinthians 5 is that love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. The reason why y'all are suing each other is because love is not resentful. He's confronting them. He's confronting them with love. And this is what the Bible does. The Bible confronts us. And if that doesn't happen to you, if that doesn't happen to us, when we read the Bible, we aren't paying attention to these words or we aren't paying attention to ourselves. We aren't paying attention to our lives. If we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that love is the more excellent way, a great way to read this passage is to, wherever the word love is, take out love and put your name in. And when you read it through that filter of your name inserted, it will not take long for the Holy Spirit of God to tap you on the shoulder. Jeff is patient and kind. Already I'm feeling I I want to pray for myself. Jeff does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. Jeff does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable, resentful. You get the picture real quick. So where are you unloving? You, You have to examine your life. Where am I unloving towards brothers and sisters in Christ that in this church that we love, we take the Lord's Supper together, we pray together, and yet that brother or that sister just irritates you? Love is not irritable. Resentful. Holding on to how maybe another Christian wounded you and they've asked for forgiveness and you you said it, but you didn't really give it. Natalie and I were talking, so apply it to marriage a little bit. Natalie and I were talking about this list just yesterday. And I said, which one do you think is more difficult? You know, do you wrestle with? You hear and you're like, ugh. I said, man, for me, just insisting on my own way. It's just something I always have to hear and I can feel in in my heart and go, okay, I I can uh, kill that, crucify it, not insist on my own way. And she goes, oh, not me. I don't struggle with that. I said, well, yeah, because I'm always doing what you want. That's why you don't struggle with that. Because I'm always the one doing it. And and joking joking aside, real growth and grace will be had if you look at the soil of your heart and you can see where in my life is that area or this area not getting enough of the water of the word. Because we can kind of, if our lives are a, a soil bed, this little garden and we have trees with fruit and we can be really good at, oh, well, this tree has fruit. I mean, look at this. I mean, this one's near death and has nothing, but look at this one. Look at my Bible knowledge. I'm a jerk, though. I mean, I serve. I'm always there. I give, but I'm really envious. First Corinthians 13 is not an optional personality matrix. Do what you can. Just do you. These are not biblical ways of thinking. This is supposed to be who we are. Now, there is a real danger with this passage also, is that you read it, and the danger is that you read it wrongly. You're not reading it properly. You can read this and think, okay, I, I need to be more kind. I need to be more um, gracious. I need, to, I, I need to get rid of that envy. I'm going to really work on that. And you should do those things. None of us have a free pass to not assess our hearts. But does Paul say to the Corinthians, guys, you need to be more kind? Is that how he structures these words? Does he say, guys, love is kind. You need to improve on that. Remember what I said in chapter 6. Love is patient. Remember, I just told you. Does he say, you need to do this, you need to do this? No, he doesn't do that. What is Paul doing? He shows them what love is. He's putting love on display for them. He doesn't hit them with commands. Here, he does everywhere else in this book. But here, he's not hitting them with commands. Instead, he is, what did he say at the end of 12? I will show you a more excellent way. He's showing them what love is. Putting it on display for them. He lifts up love for them and calls them to look at it and to take it. Why? Because you have to behold love before you can behave in a truly loving way. You have to behold what love is before you can behave in a truly loving way. You have to see it before you can be it. Love has to overwhelm you. It has to break you. It has to change you. It has to lift you up. It has to raise you from the dead, and then it has to empower you. This is Christianity. Christians aren't people who just try to be better people, who try to be more loving because the Bible says so. That's cheap and really powerless, and unattractive. I hate that kind of religion. Christians want to be loving people because we have beheld, because we have seen, we have savored the great love of God and Jesus Christ for us, our Lord. Because we have seen a bloody cross and an empty, dusty tomb for us. This passage is really a further exposition and explanation of the character of Christ, of who Jesus is, because of the other famous statement about love in the Bible, God is love. So this is just a further explanation into the mighty heart of God. So instead of putting your name in the passage and feeling really bad really quick, you put Jesus' name in the passage and it rings true. Our name in, it rings false. Put his name in, it rings true. We put our name in, and we see that we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But you put Jesus's name in, and then you see hope, you see salvation, you see your Savior, because Jesus is kind to you. Because Jesus is patient towards you. Because Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Because Jesus Jesus does not insist on his own way. How? Father, your will be done. He is not irritable. And praise the Lord that he is not irritable. For if he was, none of us would be Christians. I'm confident of that. He is not resentful towards you. Oh, that you would believe this about King Jesus. He is not resentful towards you. He is not grossed out by your sins. If you are in Christ, you are with him. He is not looking at you going, I cannot believe that. I can't believe you did that. He's saying, I know you did it. And I came for it and I love you and I died for it. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ. And even as he was dying on the cross, what does Jesus yell out? He says, Father, forgive them. The death of Jesus, that awful, disgusting cross on which he was crucified for sinners, dying to pay the penalty for our sins, it is the love of God. It is the purest definition of love in the universe. His kindness is shown in the cross, his patience, all, all there. John 15, greater love has no one than this, Jesus says, that someone lay down his life for his friends. No greater kindness in the universe than the cross of Christ. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life, and I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. Who's kind to me. Who's patient with me. Ephesians five and walk in love. Walk in 1 Corinthians thirteen. Why? Because Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I love 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love. You want to know what love is? It's not the notebook. You want to know what love is? By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so what does that do now? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If I know his love, you really know it? Once you've beheld his love, then you can really behave in a truly loving way. And once you see it, something clicks, something changes. By this, we know love. We know and understand what love is from two angles, from the gospel, Jesus dying for us, and Paul's explaining the DNA of the gospel. And now we lay down our lives for each other. We don't insist on our own way. Not insisting on your own way as small as what you're going to watch on TV tonight, that's, the gospel speaks into that moment. If you know the love of God, you're radically changed. What you're going to eat afterwards. What you listen to on the radio. I feel like if I listen to any more Veggie Tales, I might cry. But his grace is sufficient. There is no situation you will ever be in where love is irrelevant or exempted. This is our new operating system. If you've seen it for yourself, that's why Paul's just showing them what love is. Because once you behold something that glorious, the Spirit takes it and now you go, that's that's life. That's living. So do you know the love of Christ? Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe that the mighty heart of Jesus is after you? Do you believe that he loves you still now, today? Do you believe that no matter what sin you are harboring, that he doesn't resent you? If you will go to him and confess and repent and believe that you'll find the God who is slow to anger and rich in love. And in verse 7, when he says this, loves all things, love bears all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things, this is a great exaggerated way to say love is all weather. It doesn't crack. It doesn't rust. That God's love never fails on us and will never fail on us. And so if God's love will never fail on us, we can never fail in love to one another. And as soon as God's love fails for you, you have A free pass to fall and fail in love for everyone else, but that will never happen. In this last section, verses 8 to 13, we don't have time to go through all of it, but Paul's point really is, a day will come when all spiritual gifts are irrelevant. All the things that we're so impressed by, those are all gonna go away. The gift of tongues will be gone. Prophecy, we won't need it in the new heavens and new earth. The gift of knowledge, we'll know fully as we already are fully known. And when the perfect comes, I don't think that's the completion of the Bible. I don't think it's the, uh, all these other, I think it is when the, because the word is the design, when the final design comes, when it lands, the new heavens, the new earth, when it's here, where everything's perfect, the universe has been made new. The perfect's here. All those things are gone except one thing. What does Paul say? Love. Love is forever. Faith will become sight in the new earth. Hope will be realized, but love remains. Love is forever. Love will never pass away. Love never ends. Jonathan Edwards says heaven is just a world of love. And even then you got to think what? Oh, perfect kindness. Grace. Redemption. Are you struggling to love? It seems that our struggles to love others are actually struggles in knowing God's love. The person you're struggling to love isn't the problem. You are. I am. We're failing to see the radical nature of God's love for us. That we didn't deserve it. And he threw all he had at us. He didn't hold back. He didn't measure it. And once that hits us, something happens, something clicks, something breaks, something flourishes, and we stop making excuses, and we walk by faith in the love of Christ. Because love is not a secondhand emotion. It's the engine of the Christian life. Love is an old-fashioned notion. 2,000 years ago on the cross, and it's power today. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Love has everything to do with it. And may the Spirit of Christ move us further into his love so that we can move wider into our love for one another. Christ be praised. Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today, I invite you to come forward. Lord Jesus, now would you, by your Spirit, even... Move towards someone's heart who has never heard your love, who has never received your love, and would you show them that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. And Lord, would you help your sheep now to, re- to feel your love, to-, to see your love on display and to be changed to see your great and mighty love for us sinners and then how you are now empowering us for it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now we can have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. So now would you help us to love the brothers and the sisters and to love our neighbors as ourselves? By this we know love. And the world will know that we are your disciples by the way we love one another. Help us, Lord Jesus. And it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.